If you have a Bible, take it out, find the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Last week we kind of left off mid-thought. We left off mid-thought because the power went off. And as soon as the power went off, everyone's thought was gone. So we left off. And uh, my thought was gone. There was a family I was supposed to introduce to you, a family that had joined at our new member class the previous week. And uh, they were waiting till they had their kids with them. And uh, I was supposed to introduce them to you last week. And I did not do that. I forgot. And I apologize to them. And one of these Sundays, you'll get to meet them. And uh, that was my mistake. But we also left off mid-thought because we left off really in the middle of one of Paul's thoughts. Last week we looked at Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 to 8. And then this morning we're going to look at 9, 10, and 11. But they're all sort of in there together. And there's enough in those verses that I didn't want to try to cover it all in one Sunday. Uh, And so we've split it up a little bit. But it's really the same thought that we continued last week. So just to remind you from last week, we know that Paul's prayer... For his friends in Philippi involved thanksgiving and joy. He was thankful to God when he thought about his friends, and he felt joy and rejoicing when he thought about these people that he had left behind in Philippi. That was last week. Now this morning we pick it up in verse 9, and the big idea, if I had to break it down and and give you one thought from this passage, is, is very simple. Paul prayed for the spiritual maturity of his friends in Philippi. Yes, he was thankful for these people. Yes, he felt joy when he thought about these people, but his actual prayer when he gets around to the actual request in verse 9 is he is praying for their spiritual maturity. He does not want them to be babies in their faith, infants in their faith, but he wants them to grow up and to be spiritually mature. And there's a lesson in that. It almost goes without saying, but I think we just need to say it anyways. These are people that Paul loved. And he didn't have all sorts of space and time to just write all of the things that maybe he was praying for these people. He, he maybe knew of some people who were sick or people who had suffered loss or all sorts of requests that he may have had for this church. But the one that rises to the top, the one that he absolutely is not going to leave out of this letter is his prayer for spiritual maturity for his friends. And I think it's just generally true that you and I pray for the things that are most important to us. I mean, we can say the right church answer, and we can fill in the blank with Jesus, and we can say, yes, God is most important. But I think if you examine my prayer life and your prayer life, anybody's prayer life, I don't even think they have to be a Christian. Polls show that non-religious people pray just as much as we do. When you look at somebody's prayer life, I think you see something, you see things that are most important to them, regardless of what kind of Sunday school answer you might give, I think your prayers will tell on you every time. And when Paul thought about praying for these people, the one thing that rises to the top that he absolutely is praying for is their spiritual maturity. And so look at the passage with me. We're going to back up to verse 3 just because it's mid-thought and we're going to understand what Paul's saying. So we're going to read Philippians 1, 3 to 11. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this. 
He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at this old prayer that Paul prayed for his friends in Philippi, we believe that your spirit inspired these words. We believe that there is truth in these words. We believe that there's application for our lives that we need to take away, we need to think about, we need to reflect on. And so, Lord, as we look at Paul's request for his friends, it's a simple prayer. It's easy to understand, but we pray that you would show us, give us eyes to see how it might apply to our life. Where do we need to repent? Where do we need to change? Where do we need to think differently? Father, be honored in our time of study this morning. We pray that your spirit would bring conviction to our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Three verses this morning, okay? We're going to slow down and we're going to think about them. And honestly, this is a kind of passage that almost preaches itself. I don't really have any fancy uh, alliteration to give you. I don't really have any sort of mind-blowing outline to present to you. I just want to walk through what Paul is actually praying for. And let's think about it together. Okay, so we're going to start with this question. According to Paul, what does spiritual maturity look like? At least three things. First, he mentions overflowing love. Overflowing love. Is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Now, what's interesting here, and I read a lot of commentaries on this week and tried to get a lot of different opinions Paul never mentions the object of the love that he's talking about. Like he doesn't say that your love for the Dallas Cowboys would abound more and more. Or your love for sports would abound more and more. Your love for chocolate chip cookies would abound. He just leaves it. That your love would abound more and more. And the two most prominent answers, as some scholars say, well, he's talking about love for other people. He wants them to have love for the other folks in their church family. Love for others you got these other scholars over here, and they say, no, he's talking about love for God. He wants them to love God more than anything else. And I think the correct answer is yes, both of them. And I think he leaves it open on purpose. I don't think he's trying to narrow it just to love for God or just to love for other people, but I think what he's saying is your love for God first that spills over into love for other, other people, I want it to abound more and more and more, and I want it to overflow out of your life. Look, I think Paul knew the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments can be divided into table one and table two. Table one is all about how God's people were supposed to love God, and table two was all about God's people were supposed to love each other, and they went together. And I think Paul got that. I think Paul understood what Jesus was trying to say. Do you remember when when he was put to the test and somebody said to Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? 
And what did Jesus say? First you love God more than anything else, and then you love your neighbor as yourself. You can't separate those two things. Those two things go together. And I think that's what Paul's talking about when he prays that your love may abound more and more and more. I want to be clear. I don't think Paul's talking about emotion when he calls these people to love and to abound. That's sort of one of the ways love gets redefined in our day. Just sort of gets reduced to emotion, to something that you feel. But the word that Paul uses here is the word, you've probably heard of it, agape. And what he's saying is, I want you to love with a sacrificial love that actually takes action. It's not just something you're passive in that you feel like an emotion, but it's something where you take action and you're willing to make a sacrifice for somebody else. I don't think what Paul is calling his friends in Philippi to do is to practice the sort of love that you hear in our society today that just says, we're going to affirm and approve of anything and everything. Whatever you feel like, whatever you want, I want to be loving towards you and I'm going to affirm that and give you the thumbs up and say, congratulations, go for it. Because I think in Paul's mind, when he says, I want your love to abound, he understands love for other people and how that plays out in your life is always tempered by a love for God and his commands. So he leaves it open-ended here, and he says, I want your love to abound. What does that mean? It means love for God, and it means love for other people. Spiritual maturity. Here's what else it looks like. It looks like spiritual knowledge. There's no way around this. There is an intellectual component to Christianity that you can't miss. Our faith has certain truth statements that are non-negotiable. And Paul says, I want you to have spiritual knowledge. I want your love to abound more and more with knowledge. Paul uses that word knowledge in his letters 15 times. Every time he uses it, he's referring to knowledge of God and the gospel. What he's saying to these people is very simple. He's saying, I want you to have knowledge. What kind of knowledge? Knowledge that the God who exists and created everything is holy and he's set apart from you and he's not like you. He's above you. And I want you to have knowledge not only of who God is, but who you are as a sinner. You've fallen far short of his standard and there's nothing you can do to fix that on your own. He wants them to have knowledge of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish on this earth, that Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience, and he gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins at the cross so that we could be forgiven. And he wants them to understand the importance of repentance and faith, that you need to turn from your sin and you need to turn to Jesus, trusting in him alone. When he says, I want you, I'm praying for you to have knowledge, that's what he's talking about. Who is God in his holiness? Who are you as a sinner? What has Jesus done to save you, and what do you need to do as a response? He wants these people to know these things. Sometimes in our day and age, this idea of knowledge and love get pitted against each other. I read this week about a church conference. It was one of the old World Council of Churches church conferences way back in the 20s. It's been an awful long time ago, almost 100 years ago now. And the theme of the conference was Doctrine Divides, Love Unites. And I think a hundred years later, there's a lot of people that still buy into that. 
A lot of people have the idea that when we start talking about things that are absolutely unnegotiably true, that that's just a divisive thing. It divides people. And what we need is less of that sort of division and more of just sort of an open-armed inclusion of anyone and everyone. But I don't think that the truth and love are opposed to each other at all, especially when you think about it from a biblical perspective. Let me give you a hypothetical scenario that might explain what I'm talking about. Imagine that you find a lump and you're concerned about it. So you go to the doctor and you show the doctor and you say, I need to have some tests done. And it just so happens that one of your close friends is a world-renowned oncologist. And they say, don't worry, it's going to be okay. We're going to run the test. You don't need to be anxious about this. And so they run the tests and they call you. You need to come in and visit with us. And you come in. And let's say those tests have come back and your friend is looking at those tests. And right there at the top of the the report is the C word. What do you want from your friend? You want your friend to smile and close that and shove it in the top drawer and just look at you and say, it's all going to be okay. Don't worry about it. I mean, it's not great news that you're hoping your friend will give you, but if that's the news, you want your friend to shoot you straight, right? You want an honest, accurate diagnosis. You don't want to play games. You don't want to pretend that there's no problem when there really is a problem. You want the truth. You want it from your doctor, and you especially want it from somebody who says that they care about you. Listen, in our day and age, we have truth to give to people. And a lot of people hear that truth as bad news. And let's be honest, mixed in with this knowledge that Paul's praying for is some bad news. You are a sinner. There's no way around that. God doesn't approve of anything and everything that you may want to do with your life. We can't pretend that that's not the case. But the truth is never supposed to be in opposition to love. And Paul prays for both of these things in the very same breath. I want you to have love for God. I want you to have love that spills over for other people. And I want you to have spiritual knowledge. And the last thing he prays is this. I want you to have love and I want you to have knowledge. Lastly, he wants them to have discerning wisdom. Discerning wisdom. In the ESV that I'm reading out of, it's the word discernment. In your translation, it may be the word insight, if you're reading out of a different translation. It's a Greek word very closely connected with wisdom, and the idea is pretty simple. You're going to face situations in your life where I, as your pastor, cannot tell you open to such and such verse, and this is exactly what you need to do here and how you need to handle this situation. And what you need in that situation is discernment, insight into the truth of God's word, So that when you face a situation in your life that isn't exactly spelled out word for word, letter for letter in the scriptures, you know what God wants you to do in that situation. And this is Paul's prayer for his friends. I want you to have love that overflows. I want you to have spiritual knowledge. And I want you to have wisdom, discerning wisdom. He could have prayed anything in the world for these people. And this is what rose to the top. 
This was a church that he started, people that he cared about, that he had to leave. He didn't have the choice to stay. He had to leave. And when he thought back about his friends, this was the one thing he wanted more than anything else. And so he prayed about it. He said, God, I want you to make these people spiritually mature. I don't want them to be babies in their faith. That means they need to have love that overflows. They need to have knowledge of the truth about spiritual things. And they need to have discerning wisdom to know how to live their life every single day. You say, why did he pray these things? Why was this so important to him that it would be the one thing he prayed? I'm just going to walk you through the passage and show you several reasons. Why did he do it? What motivated Paul to make these requests? Number one, he wanted them to approve what is excellent or, same idea, he wanted them to know what was best. You see a word in verse 10. In my translation, it's the word approve. It's it's the idea that a merchant would be conducting business in the marketplace and somebody would come pay the merchant for goods. And the merchant, in the ancient world, you know, coins come from all over the place and you don't know if it's real or genuine or not. And the merchant would test it or he would approve it to see if it was real or not. And Paul says, I want you to go through that same process in your life. I want you to test things so that you know what is excellent. What's best? Sometimes as Christians, I know I've been guilty of this and I bet you have too. Sometimes we get too wrapped up in what can we do? How far can we go with something? How much are we allowed to push the boundary? And Paul's not asking that question. He is not praying for his friends, I hope you know where the boundaries are and you don't cross those boundaries. He's saying, I hope you're not even within a million miles of the boundary, and I hope you're pursuing what's best, what's excellent. He's not asking the question, what can you do? He's asking the question, what ought you to do? And sometimes we get those flipped, and we want to know where the line is that we can't cross. And Paul's focus is in an entirely different place. He says, I'm I'm not concerned that you know where to stop. I'm concerned that you're so focused in the other direction that you only care about what's excellent and what's best. Second, he wanted them to be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Pure and blameless. The idea here comes from the world of pottery. I read a Bible scholar this week that said in the ancient world, pottery was the world's largest industry. People made more money making pottery than anything else. And he says there's basically two kinds of pottery in the ancient world. One kind is cheap. And almost anyone could make it. You know, it's just sort of cheap clay and you make it really thick and it's not very attractive and it's not decorated and it's just sort of a functional jug or jar or plate or something that you can use. But then there's the high-end stuff, the quality stuff. It said it was made very, very thin and it took skill to make it. Not just anyone could do it. And if you made it right, you could almost see all the way through it. It was almost clear. We think of pottery like terracotta pottery. But in the ancient world, the best pottery was see-through. And the challenge when you made thin pottery is when you went to fire it, it cracked really easy. And if you got all the way through the process of making pottery and you put one in the fire and it cracked, you sort of wasted your time and your money. So what a lot of dishonest potters would do is they would take wax and they would smear that wax down the crack. Fill the crack with wax. If you're sitting in a dimly lit shop in the ancient world, there's no overhead lighting. You pull that thing up, you look at it, and you say, well, this looks pretty good. When you take it out in the sunlight, it's easy to see if it's, same word, pure. 
or not. You hold it up to the sun and you can see that smudge of wax down the middle. You can see exactly where the crack is. And you don't want to waste your money on expensive pottery that's filled with wax and all the cracks. Paul says, look, I want you guys, when you get held up to the light of the sun, I want you to be pure and blameless. This is, again, he's not asking, where's the line so I don't get up and toe the line and I don't want to cross it. He's saying, I want you to know what is excellent and I want you to be pure. And the reason is, what does he say? For the day of Christ. He's reminding them that a day is coming when they will stand before Jesus and give an account. I don't know about you, but I don't think about that near enough. I get busy. You know, I'm not out doing wicked, terrible, depraved things all day long, but I'm just busy. And a day goes by, and a week goes by, and a month goes by. And it's super easy for me to live my life never thinking about the fact there is a day coming where I will stand before the king. I'm going to be held up to the light. And on that day, when that happens, for Paul's friends in Philippi, he says, I want you to be pure and blameless. I don't want you to be ashamed on that day. That leads directly to the next thing he mentions. What's his motivation? He wanted them to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. There's two kinds of righteousness in the Bible. One is the kind that when you repent of your sin and you trust in Jesus, God gives it to you. Or as the Bible says, he counts it to you. He credits it to you. It's a bookkeeping term that means you're not righteous. You're clearly guilty. You're a sinner. But because you have faith in Jesus, the righteousness of Christ gets slapped onto your account, credited to your account, and your standing with God is secure. That's one kind of righteousness. The other kind of righteousness is the righteousness that God works in us and through us as we're filled with the Spirit and the Spirit convicts us of sin and moves us to obedience, we become people who do righteous things. And I think that's what Paul's talking about. He's saying, my prayer for you guys is that you would be righteous. You know what's excellent, right? You know what's excellent. You're pure on the day of Christ and God is actually working this righteousness in you. I want you to be careful to, to, to get an idea, though, because we can hear this prayer for righteousness and we can think, oh, man, I got to do more. I'm not a very righteous person. I got I to be better, something that we do. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Gospel of John? I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. Be very careful that you don't try to work up some kind of righteousness in your own life that you can present to God. And be very quick to remind yourself, the only way that I can bear fruit and be righteous is because I'm connected to the vine. I read a story this week about T.E. Lawrence. You may know him as Lawrence of Arabia. He's a British military officer and uh, of pretty significant rank. That's him in his British military outfit, and that's sort of what he wore when he was serving in the Middle East at different times. And uh, lots of exploits, lots of great stories from his life. One of the funniest stories is he came back from the Middle East, and he brought a bunch of Arab friends with him. And these were Bedouin guys. They lived in tents. They had never been to sort of what we would think of as civilization. And he took these guys to Paris, and they went to a hotel. 
These guys go into this hotel and he says to them, the bathroom's right over here and they walk in this bathroom and think about it, you've lived in a tent in the desert all your life, you don't know anything about plumbing and you walk up to the wall and you turn a knob and what comes out? Water. You turn it off and it stops and you turn it on and more water. And you leave it on and it's just water, 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 water. These guys were amazed. Lawrence said he almost couldn't get them out of the bathroom. All they wanted to do was just sit there and turn the knob, water. These guys lived in the desert, right? They don't have plumbing, they don't have access to water, and there it is, all you want, just pouring out of the pipes. And he says when they got ready to leave, some of these guys had yanked the faucet, the knob, off the wall. But they didn't know. And they thought, I can take the knob home, plug it in the side of my tent, turn it on, and I got water. This is great. It's magic. Paris is the best. And Lawrence said, no, 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 no. Faucets are great. Knobs are fine. But you got to be connected to the source. Side of your tent ain't going to cut it. If you go home and you say, I'm supposed to be righteous. I'm supposed to be good. And you try to work up a bunch of righteousness in your own life apart from a living, genuine, active faith in Jesus Christ, you might as well be taking a water faucet and shoving it onto the side of a tent. You might get something, but it's not going to be righteousness. Paul says, I want you to have righteousness that overflows out of your life, that comes out of your life. But to do that, he understands these people have to be connected to Jesus. One last idea. Why does he pray this? He wants them to live for the glory and praise of God. He wants the Philippians to live their lives for the glory and praise of God. Now look, you fill that in and you say, this is easy stuff. We're the Sunday morning crew. We woke up early to get here. We're sacrificing a day. Everyone in this room knows you're supposed to live your life for the glory and praise of God. We pray that all the time. God be honored in my life. God be glorified in my life. I know you're the Sunday morning crew. I know that nobody in the room is probably going to give me pushback when I say you should live your life for the glory and praise of Christ. The question I want you to think about is this. If the highest aim in your life, the ultimate goal of your existence is to live for the praise and the glory of God, So that you point to that end and you point other people to that end. How often do you really think about that? If that's your purpose, your singular, sole, highest purpose in life is to live for God's glory and honor. I know you don't disagree with it when I say it to you on a Sunday morning. My question is, in your daily life, how often do you reflect on it? How often do you examine yourself? How often do you slow down and just say, am I doing what I'm supposed to do? Am I living for the reasons I'm supposed to live? Because if you're like me, again, it's easy to get busy and you just do one thing after another and you're running from place to place and before long, a a day, a week, a month's gone by and you haven't ever, I haven't ever slowed down to think, what is my actual purpose? Is it just to be busy Or is it to live my life in such a way that God is honored and praised? How do we apply it to our lives? Three simple questions and we'll end. First of all, as an individual, do I see spiritual maturity as my goal? As an individual. Look, in the Bible Belt, where we live, it's super easy to show up here Sunday morning 
go to Sunday school, come to big church, and to feel like you've done your spiritual deed for the week. Maybe you even come back on Wednesday night and you feel doubly good about yourself. I was there twice this week. Fantastic. My question is not about how often do you show up in this room. My question is, do you understand that spiritual maturity ought to be the goal in your life? And if we looked at your calendar, would we see that reflected? If we looked at your bank account, would we see that reflected? If we looked at your Netflix history or your iTunes selections, or we looked at your social media accounts, would it be reflected that spiritual maturity is the goal that you ought to be striving for, not to be a baby in your faith? So do you get it as an individual? Secondly, in my family, do I see spiritual maturity as the goal? Broaden it out a little bit. Think about your kids. Think about your grandkids. Think about your siblings. Do you see spiritual maturity as the goal? Again, I'm talking to the Sunday morning crowd. I'm talking to the people who have given their Sunday morning to come to church. I'm just telling you, it's very easy to drag your kids to church because you want them to be around some nice people and pick up some nice moral lessons and you don't want to wake up in 10, 15, 20 years and see them on the front page of the OA for something that would embarrass you. I talk to parents all the time. They say, you know what, I need to get my family back in church. It would be good for my my kids. They need to, to grow up with the same values that I grew up with. And I think what a lot of these parents or maybe even grandparents are saying to me is, I sort of need to Christianize my kids and civilize them a little bit. I mean, I want to keep them out of trouble. Maybe church can help me do that. Keeping your kids out of trouble is not the goal. If that's your goal, you set your goal way too low. If your goal for your grandkids is that they get a great education or that they succeed in athletics or that they have a better version of the American dream than you did, your goal is lousy. The goal is spiritual maturity. So when you think about your family, is that the goal that you've set? Last question is this. At church, do I see spiritual maturity as the goal? Maybe for some of you it's a place to socialize. Maybe it's a a place where you come and you learn a thing or two, sort of a, a nice history lesson. Maybe for some of you it's routine, habit, ritual, just something you're accustomed to doing. When you show up to this place, my prayer is what Paul's prayer is. Is that when we gather together, it's not just out of routine and ritual, and it's not just because we like being together, although we do. But it's that we're striving after spiritual maturity, and we're doing it together. And we come together to grow in our faith, to be challenged in our faith, so that when we leave, we're equipped to lead our families to spiritual maturity. We're equipped to lead other people to spiritual maturity, and that Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, when we don't have something going on here, that you leave remembering the goal is still spiritual maturity. i got to grow in my faith, not just when I walk into this room and sing a song and listen to a lesson, but that's a goal in all of my life. So that's Paul's prayer for his friends in Philippi, and that's certainly my prayer for you this morning. And with that being said, I want you to bow, and I want to pray for you, and I want to pray for myself. Ask God to drive this home to our hearts. Father, we believe that your word is true. We believe that what Paul prayed 
for these friends in Philippi was not just his heart, but it was your heart. It was your Holy Spirit inspiring him to write these words, to pray this prayer. Father, that it ought to be something that's part of our life every single day. It ought to be the goal in our families, and it ought to be the goal when we come together as a church family. Father, forgive us when we try to give ourselves a pass because we've done something spiritual or we've gone into a a spiritual building or a place or an address. Father, help us to see growing in our faith and growing to maturity as the goal and as the aim and as the purpose. Father, help us to overflow with love for you and love for other people. Help us to have spiritual knowledge of the truth. Father, and give us discernment and wisdom to know how to live our lives on a daily basis in a way that honors you and points people to you. Father, we love you. We're grateful for your grace. And we want to sing again this morning about your goodness and your faithfulness. And so as we lift our voices, we pray that you would receive our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.